Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of March 28th, 2018. I'm Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host today, and I'm joined, as usual, by my co-podcasters on the line from Chicago. We've got 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. What's going on, man? And here in studio, 538's Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. How you guys doing? <laughs> Settling in for the stretch yeah. run, uh, I'm assuming. Uh, just a couple weeks left in the NBA season, uh, getting ready for the playoffs. Uh, so the calm before the storm for both of you guys having to write about it uh, constantly uh, for the next few months, I think. The, the end of the season, you know when it is, but it always feels like it kind of creeps up on you where you go from just kind of sitting back and enjoying the games to trying to figure out what it means and what these matchups will mean. And so I think we're at that stage now where... We're trying to write our last few stories about it before we get into the playoffs. Yeah, it definitely comes up fast, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, these games go from not mattering much at all to really, really mattering. Uh, And so somewhat along those lines, on today's show we're going to talk about the Golden State Warriors, their many injuries, and in particular one, uh, the injury to Steph Curry and how his absence will affect them during the playoffs. We also have a significant digit about an oddly important member of the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, probably not who you're thinking of. Uh, But first, let's discuss another bit of injury news that broke over the weekend at the same time that the Curry news was hitting. Uh, The Celtics announced that Kyrie Irving would undergo a minimally invasive procedure, uh, whatever that means. Yeah, what are the two most important words in that? (laughs) Invasive and procedure. Uh, To alleviate irritation in his left knee, uh, according to SI.com, the procedure on his knee revealed that the fractured patella that he suffered during 2015 had completely healed and that his knee is actually structurally sound overall, which is good news for the Celtics, but Irving is still on a three- to six-week timetable for a return, and that means his availability for the early stages of the playoffs is unknown. He could be back right as they're starting or as late as the middle of the second round, potentially. So first thing first, what does this mean for the Celtics as they close out the regular season just in terms of seeding? It it means nothing as far as seeding is concerned. I, I don't think that really there's much way... I mean, I'm sure there's still a magic number involved. They obviously haven't clinched the number two spot, but it would take them falling apart completely to not make the second seed. And the irony is that, you know, on the show we're going to discuss a couple injuries, both including teams that really couldn't fall out of the number two seed no matter what. Uh, at least, basically, they couldn't. Uh, and so when you look at that, it doesn't mean anything. But when you look at the rhythm that they may be in come playoff time, and you look at the other injuries that they've been dealing with and that they are dealing with, uh, it, it actually seems to matter quite a bit. Because, you know, what, are they playing well as they get to the playoffs? Are they totally in a spot where a team can take advantage of how disruptive stuff looks in terms of just the way that they haven't really had moments to play together for a month and a half, two months? And so... It'll it'll be interesting to watch. Um, I, I still think they have to be favored going into any series that they have against the seven seed, um, but it, it it does become interesting. And I, you know what I would say, and I think I said this in a meeting a couple of days ago. I at this point I kind of don't see how the Celtics win a championship. And normally you don't really write off a two seed this early, but they're already dealing with the Hayward. Uh, injury, you know, him having missed the whole season basically, and you're relying on a lot of youngsters, and oh, all of a sudden, you know, Kyrie 
when he comes back, how good will he be? And the fact that he's coming off this long of a layover. I, I just tend to think that there are too many things, even though they've got a great defense, that that's just too many things and too many injuries that they're dealing with without already having one of their top guys that they were supposed to have. Well, I do think the arc of this Celtics season is interesting because we talked about them a lot at the beginning of the season, and obviously they were winning 16 straight games. We had to talk about them, and we really haven't, they haven't risen to the level of discussing all that much or devoting a whole episode to since, uh, and they've played at a, about a 51 win pace. So, you know, you have to think there was maybe some chance that if they got hot late uh they could have gotten you know made things interesting for the raptors in terms of the number one seed but right now yeah like you said chris they're just firmly in in between toronto above them and cleveland below them and they're kind of stuck in second it seems like yeah and the thing with the irving injury is it's not a place where they're deep either uh so they have rogier who has played like the Celtics fans really like how he's playing, but like if you look at like the underlying stuff, he hasn't been that effective. It's prom- it's a promising season for a young player, but not um, you know, hard bones effective. And then Shane Larkin has just not been good. It's a team that really needs uh, all the ball handling it can get, for, which is you know strange for a team that had like fifteen point guards last season. Uh, but even the ones who are you know their their overall numbers look better. So Marcus Smart, uh, his numbers in the pick and roll overall look pretty good. But if you break that off and you say you look at his numbers when he's playing with Irving and without, uh, his numbers on pick and roll when he's playing with Kyrie are he's generating 112 points per 100 chances. That's like Chris Paul levels. Uh, when Irving's off the floor, that drops to 90, uh, which is fine but not good. Larkin, for the record, is like down at like 78 or 80, which is uh, not you know NBA standard. Uh, so like this is a this is a team that like they can't really take many more injuries because they've been you know hit really hard lately but at the point guard position especially and especially with Kyrie it's it's it really sucks Kyle I don't think you're giving Rozier quite enough credit right I mean he has been uh, a really pleasant surprise for them and and even more than that if you look at his for instance his real plus minus numbers he's plus 1.4 on offense and plus 0.7 on defense so he has been basically as effective as brown or tatum by that metric uh on kind of a per possession basis so um there was an interesting story uh, at the ringer talking about actually rosier might get paid uh, a lot on the basis of what he does with Kyrie out just because he's been sort of this hidden gem and now he has this opportunity to take on a bigger role under a bigger spotlight it's a promising season, and the on-off um, has been pretty good. Uh, but just the shooting has not been there. And just watching game to game, there are there's at least one, like sometimes more than one, uh, plays per quarter where he's like it's clear he's doing, if not like a Kyrie impersonation, something close to it. And like these are plays that like you know they're cute in the regular season, whatever. But like in a playoff series, especially where if you're in a first round where you have a tough matchup or a tough er matchup. Uh, with Kyrie out and you're missing one of your best players, uh, those are like tougher possessions to swallow. And uh, and just overall, like the, the shooting numbers haven't been there. I, without Kyrie on the floor, Rozier is shooting, I think, 52% or 52 true shooting percentage, which is more than 52 field um, uh which is not great. And uh, so the, the offense, like just when he has to generate it himself, 
um, hasn't been as good as like when he's able to you know feed into the system like Smart like like the rest of the team. Yeah, and speaking of generating offense, I wanted to ask about just the sheer usage uh, because Kyrie is at thirty one percent, and really only three guys on the team among regulars, Jalen Brown, Rozier, like we talked about, and Marcus Morris, are even over twenty percent, which is the benchmark for just an an average uh, possession user across the entire NBA. So, Chris, I, I wanted to ask who picks up the load? Do you think for them on offense is it kind of a by committee thing, and they try to keep the efficiency that they have? With with, uh, Horford and Brown and Tatum, or does somebody else kind of try to mimic the role like Kyle was saying, Terry Rozier doing like a, a Kyrie impression or something like that? Really, no, nobody does. I mean, that's kind of the problem here. This is a team that um, I think about that Oklahoma City win they had that was crazy that right after it happened, Kyle was saying that, uh, that Morris traveled on the three that he took. But that's a game. What was the final in that game? Was it 92 to 91 or was it like 102 to 101 or something? Whatever it was, it was, yeah, whatever it was, they won a a somewhat low-scoring game at home. That was the one we just talked about where they, the 0 and 884 and the Celtics came back and won in the last 20 seconds of the game. But you look at a game like that and the Celtics won it because of their defense. Not re, I mean, obviously clutch offense at the very end of the game, but it was, it was mostly, Brad Stevens's offense and the fact that they really share the ball a lot, they have to because they don't have anyone else that can really create. They've got a lot of guys that are unselfish outside of Kyrie, and they win because they have the league's best defense. And so that's probably their their real path to winning until Kyrie is himself, especially if Kyrie comes back and is not terribly efficient right away, um, that Kyrie is going to hoist a lot of shots. He'll get guys involved. But they're, they're going to have to kind of get by with their defense and hope that somebody else can have a good night offensively um, through their ball movement, not so much because he's creating everything by himself. So what do you guys think that that does for their chances if he does miss round one? Uh, they'll they'll probably play the seven seeds, so that means probably the Heat, but maybe the Wizards, Bucks. You know, there's a little bit of room around there. Uh, are the Celtics favored over those teams with, with home court in, in a first-round playoff series? Yeah, no, I, th- I think they're they're favored. Uh, depending on who they get in that series, it becomes totally interesting. I mean, if you get the Bucks, um, I mean, the Bucks have enough scoring options, and obviously the best player in the series at that point. I mean, even if Kyrie's playing, they have the best ser- player in the series. But that that's a team where all of a sudden, you know, if they're playing as well as they can play, they win that series. I think the Bucks. Um, if Kyrie never comes back, but I. I really think Boston should be favored no matter who they're playing, regardless of whether Kyrie is there. Um, I just don't know. The question that you just asked, I think, becomes way more relevant. Who scores in a series like that? If they're playing um, if they're playing the Wizards, I think it becomes an interesting question. If they play Miami, I think that they, they probably that's probably their best bet because Miami isn't a great scoring team. They're a team that's pretty good on defense, but I think it's kind of a team that will have the same problem that Boston has, where they're, they have guys that can score, but nobody who's just a, a guy is just going to kill you and rip you apart the whole series. Um, and it's basically two good defenses against each other with Boston having home court advantage and having the better of the two defenses. So I, I tend to think that's their best matchup. Um, but no, they've got to be favored either way, I think. But it does become way more interesting if they've got, if they don't have the best player in the series and it's a significant gap between the the team that they are playing against and a Giannis or something like that or a John Wall and a Bradley Beal and 
a guy or two guys being better on the other side of the court than what they have. Yeah, I think that's really important because they're going to have to force a lot of bad shots, which is something that they haven't been doing as well lately. So if you look under the hood on the the shot quality uh, metrics from Second Spectrum, overall in the season, they're still pretty close to the top on uh, quantified uh, shot quality, which is you know uh, how well you're defending shots um, in a vacuum, and they're still number one for effective field goal percentage. Uh, still the top defense. But since February, they're seventh, and in, just in this month, uh, they're down around tenth, or actually eighth. Um, and unlike the uh, the Blazers, who we talked about a few weeks ago, who they've had a few months also where you know their defense has you know come and gone, the results of it, the underlying uh, kind of shot quality that they were giving up has remained the same for Portland. For Boston, that hasn't been true. Uh, they've fallen back both to the middle of the pack in results, but like also what's under the hood. And like they've had players coming in and out of the lineup. Like it's it's obvious why, but. Uh, as we're talking about them, like still having, you know, still winning on defense, still uh, being able to, you know, do it on that side of the ball, that like that hasn't been as true either. So, so matchup is going to matter. Where, like Chris is saying, if there's are just one or two players in that series who you know can take advantage of a softer Boston defense than we saw earlier in the season, uh, that can that can turn a series. And one thing that uh, seems like it could go either way, depending on how you spin it and and how Cleveland looks uh, once they get into playoff mode, is that. According to our projections right now, the Celtics wouldn't have to play Cleveland in round two if they were to win in the first round because uh, we have the Cavs finishing with the number four seed, which would have uh, Cleveland playing Indiana in round one and then the Raptors-Bucks winner in round two. So that could come in handy for Boston uh, if, if you think delaying facing Cleveland is a good thing until Kyrie comes back. Okay, so let's move on uh, from the Celtics and talk about uh, another headline point guard injury uh, with Steph Curry and the Warriors. But first, we want to tell you a little bit about this week's sponsor. Uh, Our episode this week is brought to you by Spotify. Hey, Hoop fans, did you know you can stream this podcast on Spotify right now? It's easy. Just open the app on your mobile device or desktop, click on the Browse channel, and then click the Podcast section. You can also stream on your smart speaker. Now it's that much easier for you to stay up to date on all the latest and greatest in basketball thanks to Spotify. In his first game back from an ankle injury last Friday night, Golden State Warriors guard Steph Curry was hobbled once again, and this time with far more serious consequences. Teammate JaVale McGee rolled onto Curry's left leg, giving Curry a grade 2 MCL sprain in his knee. He limped to the locker room, had an MRI on Saturday, and on Sunday, Warriors coach Steve Kerr confirmed that Curry would miss the entire first round of the playoffs. The Warriors have a lot of injury problems right now, and we'll get to those later. But first, guys, what does this Steph Curry injury do to Golden State's NBA championship probability? Well, it uh, doesn't help. Well, sure. Uh, so, yeah, it, it it really just depends on uh, what Steph looks like when he comes back, for the most part. Uh, because most of the first-round matchups that uh, you know are possible— uh, Golden State would still be favored pretty heavily. But. Yeah, that was what I was wanted to ask. Uh, as part of this, is they're they're still with with the three all stars that they still have. They have to be favored over anyone that they could possibly face in the first round, right? Probably, probably. Um, and and yet, like there are teams that are just like really look a lot different in the second half. So like Utah is the one that we've been talking about for weeks. And Utah is like, as I was just looking at those, uh, those Boston numbers of, you know, Boston's defense in the last few months, what stands out is, you know, since Rudy Gobert came back, uh, the Utah defense is just on another level. 
Uh, and if that is the team that you know the the Warriors have to come up against, where and Chris wrote a good story about this this week, which I'm sure I'm sure we'll get into. Um, the shooting numbers haven't been there all season without Steph on the floor. Like not just without Steph in the games, but like without just without Steph on the floor. Um, and like and also without Steph in the games, uh, like Clay Thompson is like an ordinary shooter. Like Iguodala is an unplayable shooter. And if that's what Golden State is bringing into a Utah series or a series that like is like they would kind of need those games where like Steph you know raises them up to you know the untouchable level for a game or two. Uh, all of a sudden, it's closer to equilibrium than than we've seen the Warriors be. Yeah, I, no, I totally agree with Kyle. I mean, that that's an interesting matchup. The other matchup that is potentially dangerous for them that people aren't paying quite enough attention to as Minnesota slumps. If the Timberwolves slide into the eighth seed all of a sudden and Jimmy Butler comes back, uh, the Timberwolves have been, for most of the season now, the third best offense in the league, a team that can score on Golden State's defense, and a team that has slumped and looks worse than they actually are because of Butler's injury, because of trying to basically figure out pecking order and kind of how Andrew Wiggins fits there. Um, when Butler's there, when he's played poorly, and then when Butler isn't, where he feels more himself and at least has had good moments. And so if they get Butler back and all of a sudden they've kind of got a three-headed monster and obviously Jeff Teague and, and Crawford and Tyus Jones has played really well off the bench this year, that's a team that, I mean, I, I don't think Golden State is necessarily afraid of them by any means, and they shouldn't be as a two-time champion. But, it, it, I mean, it's a team that has a lot more talent than your usual eight seed. Um and let alone what Kyle was saying about just how great Utah's defense has been. All that really takes at that point, if you're playing that series without Steph, which is what Steve Kerr said will happen, um, Kevin Durant goes really cold in a series or something like that, which is unusual and you know normally doesn't happen. But if that happens all of a sudden, and KD is pretty much your primary ball handler for the majority of that series, and a guy that, you know as I wrote in my story, isolates way more when Steph isn't there for obvious reasons, in an offense that is used to ball movement, you could have a real, real problem on offense when you're playing against a good defense that's going to hold you down anyway. And so uh, Utah has found better ways to score in the second half uh, since Gobert got back. Jay Crowder has been a pretty good fit for them on offense in terms of what they like to do. That's a team that you know I don't think anybody wants to have to play them just because of how difficult they make life for teams offensively. Uh, but also that Utah can score uh, because they basically do the same things that Boston does. To some extent, the same things that San Antonio does in terms of the way they move the ball without really having anybody that we thought of coming into the season as a, a huge perimeter threat. Obviously, Donovan Mitchell changes that. But that's, that's not a team that I think many people would want to play against, especially as a first-round matchup. Utah is going to be really tough. Yeah, and we uh, we should note that th- this has been the case for a few years now, but that Curry is sort of the focal point of this Warriors team, even after they added uh, Kevin Durant. Uh, if you look at the on-minus-off-court effect uh, in terms of plus-minus per 100 possessions for each player in that group, Curry with Curry this year the Warriors are 11.6 points of efficiency better than without him uh and and those splits for the rest of the the big 4 for Golden State are plus 4.1 for Clay plus 1.3 for Draymond and only zero, plus 0. 0.9 for KD so it does seem uh you know as was the case last year that Curry is still the engine that sort of makes this historic team go in comparison with the other all-stars that they would be so you know it's a good problem to have to be stuck with having to manage with only three 
all stars in the lineup yeah, after losing your your kind of MVP candidate uh, guy. But at the same time, uh, Curry definitely does seem to be first in that pecking order of importance. Right, and this goes this goes again further down than just looking at the team's numbers as a whole. So if you look at their uh, off ball screen numbers, where uh, the Warriors are a team that cuts a lot. And so you would think that like, they're a movement team. They're a system team. And like, even though Curry is like an important cog, uh, the team gets along well without him. Well, not as much because if you take Curry out of it, all those screens and like all the, the rotations just look a lot different. So like we, we can look at, uh, the numbers for overall when there's an off ball screen happening. And Draymond Green goes from creating about 99 points per 100 possessions to 94. And overall, they go from creating about 101 or 102 to 95. And, like, we have this color-coded thing where, like, everyone is deep orange, which orange is very good, and they go to, like, blue or kind of beige, which is just kind of average. Uh, the same thing goes with, like, the other cutters. Like, Clay Thompson is, like, generating 98 points per 100 possessions on just cuts on off-ball screens. 92 without stuff on the floor. Uh, Nick Young, Kevin Durant, Patrick McCaw, Andre Iguodala, like everyone is taking a step down when they don't have that Steph Curry gravity. And like this is true for just about any star in the league. Uh, every star has some measure of gravity that defenses pay more attention to. It's not, it's not unique to Curry. What is unique to Curry is like just the, the, the magnitude of it where, uh, the, this isn't just like a difference of like, you know, the stars off the floor and the roles change. A lot of the roles actually are going to stay the same. It's just, the defense is just that much tighter because the inordinate amount of attention that's paid to Curry. Yeah, Curry, there, there's really no way to put into words exactly how important he is to the offense, even when he's not the one with the ball. Uh, so so what Kyle just said, the attention teams pay to him. That's obvious when he's coming out and trying to, you know, setting up as if he's going to spot up whether he gets the ball or not. But I think the bigger thing, and I, I mentioned this in the story I just wrote, uh, Steph you look back at last year, I haven't looked at this year's numbers, but I assume he's close to the top again. He leads the league in the number of assists that are generated as a result of his screens for guards. And I mean, this is one of the smallest players in the league who is screening guys. You know, you look at a David West or something like that. I'm sure he opens up more points per game with his screens than somebody like David West does or a lot of other bigs in the league just because why normally you would always think of someone as Steph as being the guy who is accepting somebody else's screen to free him up. But the fact that he does that, it throws defenses off so much that two guys will run at Steph. And as a result, he can screen one of the guys who, you know, might be trying to cover KD or something like that. Um, I mentioned in the story that I wrote that over the last two years, Draymond has thrown 16 lobs to Kevin Durant that have resulted in dunks. And all 16 of those have happened with Steph Curry on the court. That Draymond hasn't found KD for a single lob in the two years they've played together without Curry there. It's because they're just different openings. And they have some set plays that free up lobs that almost every time the defense bites because they're running out at Steph thinking that he's going to the three-point line. And then Steph kind of sets a back screen and says, surprise! And, you know, two guys are out of position. KD gets an easy look. But that's just kind of what he does. He set, you know, I wrote last year, he set screens, back screens for Ian Clark. Steph Curry, a two-time MVP, is setting screens for a guy off the bench. And and that's something that defenses can't really plan for uh, because even if you know that might be coming, you're still more concerned about Steph getting a three than you are about someone else getting a layup. That's how good this guy is. 
uh, let alone the fact that he can pull up from 35 and the fact that you have to be prepared for that. So there, it, it just changes the dimension of every single defense when Steph isn't there. And those extra guys and the extra defender that would be at Steph now is going to be able to be thrown on KD. It's going to put way more pressure on a guy like Draymond who hasn't shot particularly well this season. Um, and it's going to put more pressure on other guys to do something with the ball when they get it. And you're thinking about Clay and people like that. He's got a fractured thumb. And so the question will be with him, how well can he shoot? With KD, the fractured rib, how, how well can he move around once he's back? They should all be back soon, but how close to 100% are they in the absence of Steph? Right. The thing with Steph in like, in the screens, and again, like to, to give the number to what you just said, David West, 87 or uh, 88, 89 uh, points per hundred possessions on his off ball screens. Steph Curry, 112, which is like a cool, like 23, 24 points better. So yes, uh, like this is obvious, but like just Steph on the floor, like it's so again, like we're not talking about defense in the aggregate. It's not like defense is this amorphous thing where it just it rises and falls. Like we're talking about like creases, crevices, like just like breaks in the defense where guys just like look at Steph. Like you'll, you'll catch a guy just like peeking at like where he is. And all it takes is like head turn for one second and Draymond puts the ball like where it needs to be. Like that is the way this offense works. And so like that's what you're taking out of it where it's not just like the pre, like the, the pressure that is like wearing down, grinding down a defense, which, which you know, it is. They, they, in they, some they also have that. They yeah. also have that. But it's also just like these little holes that are poked in, like where you get three, four, five, six gimme possessions in a game because the the defense is just preoccupied like looking at all these shooters and you're taking a little bit of that away and that's a lot of what builds like the big leads that whatever now wasn't one of the main reasons why they wanted to pursue kd even you know coming off of the historic season that they had had was to build in this insurance policy for if if curry in particular but just if any of their stars went down right i mean the bringing in kd and having that as sort of the the secondary option i don't even know what you would call it co uh leading option is part of the rationale for what brought KD to the Warriors in the first place, at least from Golden State's standpoint. Right. I wrote a story last season like that Kevin Durant's injury, uh, he, he was out for an extended period of time when, you know, the Warriors took off. Uh, with, that injury was exactly why they needed uh, Kevin Durant, because to some extent, uh, injuries are random. And, um, you know, and like it's there, it is contentious whether uh, players are injury prone or not. Um, a lot of the, the science is, you know, trying to fix player gait and whatever else and, and habits. But for the most part, it, in large part, it is still random. Like it's, you're just talking about exposures. How, how many times is a player exposed to a jump, to running up and down the court, to, to a crash, to a collision? And that it's just going to be, uh, sometimes just our player gets hurt. And the Warriors are in the position where very few teams are, where their best player, second, but whatever you want to order, you want to put them in, one of their like MVP caliber players gets hurt. And they're still championship contenders. They can miss him for a round or two, and we think they'll probably be fine. And, like, Houston maybe can do that at this point? And who else, who else are we talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, if Houston lost Harden, that would be radically change the landscape of the Western Conference playoffs far more than we're talking about here with the Warriors. I mean, we talked last week about the Vegas futures uh, and kind of the implied probabilities of winning the title, and I think it was 46% for the Warriors, 29% for the Rockets when we talked last week. And that was 
after all of this historic great season that the Rockets have been having and the Warriors kind of coasting, then uh, Curry gets hurt, and those numbers still have Golden State 39% to win the championship and 35% for Houston. So Houston, in some ways, is like, what do we have to do to be favorites here? You know, we've had this season, and, and then now Curry is out, and it still hasn't closed the gap between the two, at least in terms of the futures market. And so, so here's where Golden State is unique in that we're not, so Houston would, it would be a more seismic, uh, turnover. And so when we were talking about Houston, uh, like and where they sit, like in, like league in recent history pecking order, uh, last episode, we mentioned that, like, there are only so many teams that, like, have even played at the level that Houston was and the ones that don't reach at least the finals. There's usually something that goes wrong. So one of those teams was the Thunder uh, in 2013, where uh, they had just been coming off the finals. Uh, they came in as the number one seed. They were playing at a very, very high level, and Russell Westbrook is hurt. And that's a team that had two MVP caliber players. They had a roster full of a, ro- a roster full of uh, you know role players that seemed to fit what they were doing. And a- as soon as Westbrook went down, people were like, "Oh well, yeah, they." They might make the finals. They might like get through this thing. They ended up losing in the second round, but that was a series where, yeah, the, not too much was expected. The Warriors, we still expect a whole lot without Curry, and that that puts them on a different uh, level, even of these other teams that have two great players and can seemingly uh, weather this kind of thing. Warriors are just better. Yeah, no, I mean this is something where basically, like Kyle said, it was an insurance policy. Uh, an expensive insurance policy, but one that was well worth it. A, because if Curry went down, which was a huge risk just because of the injuries that he had before the two MVP runs, um, you know, it's, it's worth doing for that reason that you have another MVP that you can plug in, even if you have to play a different style of offense. But secondly, and I think the more important thing, I mean, I think we don't talk about it as much anymore, but think about the teams KD was considering during his free agency. One of them was San Antonio, who... You know, just as recently as two years ago, uh, the Warriors had a 73-win season. I think the Spurs were a 67-win team. I mean, so if KD had gone there, that maybe shifts the balance in the West. Um, One of the other teams he was considering was Miami. Boston was one of the teams that he considered. And so thinking about some of this, I mean, something could be radically different here if KD had chosen one of those other teams. Um, The Clippers, I think, were one of the teams he, he... considered and so i mean if he goes to one of those teams all of a sudden two years ago the clippers could still have blake griffin and chris paul and kevin durant i mean like if you had that sort of situation um we're talking about something very different here where the warriors might not even be the best team in the west anymore um so this is why you did it you you were also playing keep away from the teams that you're competing against and contending against and so even if they're not as good and all the numbers show that and i've I've even tweeted that i think the warriors actually are more fun to watch when either Steph or KD is hurt because watching those two guys just kind of take over and, you know, their scoring instincts taking over without having to worry about sharing the ball as much is fun. You know, watching Steph go off for almost 30 and a quarter or Kevin Durant kind of going back to the OKC version of Kevin Durant just being, um, you know, an MVP caliber guy where he can put up the numbers that look that way. And I even had the story 41 points per 100 possessions with him and the four or five games out that, uh, that he played that Steph had missed. Um, but in terms of winning, I mean, they, I still think they were like three and two without Steph or something like that uh, in this most recent stretch. They're not nearly as good. And I mean, they, they go from being basically like a top five offense without Steph on the court and KD on the court to being 
the best offense in the league by like 10 or 12 points per 100 possessions when Steph is on the court with KD. And so, I mean, that's the huge difference is that they go from being what, you know, up until the last couple of years would have been considered an all-time great team to being a team that is just good for this season or maybe a borderline great offense for this season, which is a massive, massive difference, especially when you're talking about throwing them up against potentially against another offense that is one of the best of all time in Houston. They're really going to have to bring it on defense, and I think Steph's injury might help that a little bit because they've got so many guys that they can use on defense. Um, probably not if it's Quinn Cook, but this, it's just a team that, you know, we're talking about a historically great offense that is going to take a huge step back until Steph is there. One last note is this does feel a little bit reminiscent and maybe it's just, um, you know, kind of mapping uh, a pattern from the past that we've seen once onto a similar situation. But in 2016, Curry had one of the greatest statistical regular seasons by any NBA player ever. Uh, and then he ended up getting hurt, missed the first round of the playoffs. And when he came back, he was pretty ordinary by his standards, at least. He was still very good, but he was not this sort of game-changing player that, that he had shown. And uh, it ended up uh, costing the Warriors in some ways in the finals when he didn't play to the level that everyone expected, and they ended up losing to Cleveland. So... Stay tuned. This is uh, kind of the last uh, final act twist of this season, which has been, uh, we've noted in the past, one of the more interesting NBA seasons that I can remember, at least. Uh, so, you know, it, maybe it deserved a uh, plot twist like this toward the end. Now it's time for Significant Digits, the moment in the show when we bring you an interesting number from around the league that caught our eye. And this week's Sig Dig is brought to us by Kyle. Uh, so in their first season post-Kyrie Irving, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers have started Derrick Rose, Isaiah Thomas, and George Hill at point guard. Uh, not to mention LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, you know, in de facto roles. And uh, to, let's say, varying results. Uh, That's being generous. <laughs> yes. Uh, the only effective option has really been Jose Calderon, who is now 36. Uh, Cleveland is 21-9 and nine, after a pretty bad loss last night to Miami. Um, with Calderon in the starting lineup, uh, that's a 700 winning percentage, which would put them like a few games back of Toronto for the one seed instead of, you know, kind of trying to hold on to home court advantage. Uh, and Calderon is, you know, an obvious fit for LeBron with doing the LeBron ball things. Uh, he can dribble, pass, and shoot, which is a thing that guys have not really been able to do playing with LeBron at the point guard position. And the ones who have come close, uh, like let's say Mo Williams, uh, have tended to stick around for a long time, maybe longer than we thought they should. Um, and Calderon isn't like just, uh, like a, a shooter. He's like an all time shooter. Uh, he's an unofficial member of like the 50, 40, 90 club. He didn't have enough free throws to, to qualify. And he's also, uh, has the top free throw percentage, uh, season of all time, which is over 98%. Uh, and he's having a career best, uh, three point season this season. He's at 47%, I think. And so he's effectively playing, uh, just as an accessory to LeBron. Uh, so when Calderon passes to LeBron, it's a uh, 79 effective field goal percentage uh, is what they generate. When LeBron passes to Calderon, 79 effective field goal percentage. The entire rest of the team <laughs> down in the 50s. Uh, so it's a smaller sample for everyone else, but like everyone else is much less effective. Like he's been good in like for, with a few players like JR or whatever. But for the most part, it's no, no, no. It's just when Jose passes to LeBron or LeBron passes to Jose and the space that it creates when he's on the floor like that. And so the question is... Um, is this going to work in the postseason? Like, this is obviously working, like, and they've been beating up bad teams in this uh, streak that they've uh, been on lately, and they got beat up by by Miami. 
But uh, this is the kind of thing that uh, we would look at the Cavs in seasons past of like this is a softer brand of Cavs ball than we would see like them, you know, kind of grind at the Warriors with of like, oh, yeah, just just uh, LeBron goes in. They shoot. They have, you know, shooters out there versus, you know, trying to get as many, you know, live bodies on the floor against a team like the Warriors. Um, I personally feel that if they have to, you know, bring Jose Calderon within 100 feet of a Warriors series, it's going to (laughs) be a problem. But like the cat, like that's kind of the point. Like the Cavs don't have the luxury anymore of just looking at the Warriors, right? I, I mean, definitely not. I mean, they they have to get there first. Um, but really, when I when I think about Calderon defensively, he's a liability. So are a lot of people on on that team. You know, maybe not as many now that they've made some of the trades that they have. But I mean, it's a team that has people that are not good defenders. They're not really good defending as a group. Uh, you know, I, I love Dave McMenamin. Bless his heart. I feel like he goes to bat for them quite a bit as far as saying that, you know, you can't really take anything from this iteration of the team. They're still dealing with injuries. They're just getting guys back. But, I mean, the thing is, most of those guys are are subpar defenders at this point. And as a group, you know, that's going to stand out, even if if it's Jose Calderon that's making a mistake, if eventually it's Tristan Thompson or Kevin Love. It's just a team where somewhere the chain is going to break just because you don't have enough good defenders there to really make it work. What I see Calderon as, and you know, this goes back from my Knicks experience, having covered him at some point, um, it reminds me of kind of, especially because he and Hill are kind of playing together and I think starting together, um, it reminds me of when I covered the Knicks and Jason Kidd was there with Carmelo Anthony and he was playing in a dual point guard role, a guy that really all his athleticism was sapped. He didn't really have any quickness anymore, but his best attributes at that point were his ability to pass the ball and keep the ball moving and his ability to be a perimeter shooter now not nearly as good a perimeter shooter as Jose Calderon who like you said is historically great as a shooter not only from the free throw line but from the three-point range Uh, Calderon is a guy that you can't leave alone and that's kind of what the value that Jason Kidd had now we all remember how that Jason Kidd parable ended where I think he missed 17 straight shots in the playoffs and then you know retired that way um I don't think Calderon will necessarily do that because I think they were relying more on Kidd than the Cavs are relying on Calderon, who's only averaging four points a game this season. But it's more just the threat of Calderon being a better shooter and George Hill doing most of the dirty work and obviously LeBron doing most of the dirty work for that offense because, like you said, he still runs point guard. It's basically now that Jose Calderon is kind of a shooting guard, even though he's a point guard in title. Yeah, and it seems related to all of the the stuff that you mentioned, Kyle, with Cleveland's kind of musical point guards, that they're slotting in and out, uh, and, and they traded some of them away, and they got other ones, and they're still kind of struggling to find like that right piece that fits, that isn't too much of a liability on defense, while also being able to shoot and play off the ball uh, next to LeBron, and like you said those pieces are not always very easy to find uh in in historically in lebron's career and so uh you know he that also seems to be a necessity though for him to play with someone like that in order to sort of maximize the efficiency of what it means to use the space that lebron creates right and like again like george hell hasn't been bad exactly uh derrick derrick rose kind of was bad exactly 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 bad. bad um but uh, and so was Isaiah. Uh, but, like, George Hill hasn't been bad. He's shooting 36% as a Cav uh, from three, certainly not the 45% that he was shooting on the Kings, where he's just, you know, wide, wide open. Um, but And we thought that he might continue to do that. But it's just so much of a gulf between, like, that production and what you're getting from the shooting of Calderon. 
And like this is the thing, like uh, Chris was saying, uh, we've seen old point guards just kind of be in this role, whether it's like Ron Harper with uh, with Michael Jordan or Derek Fisher with the Kobe uh, team, and like and Ron Harper also with the Kobe team, and, and Ron Harper <laughs> also with the Kobe team. But Fish was also on the um, on the Thunder team uh, that you know went to the finals and uh, you know was making some noise. So this this is a role that like has existed for a while. Uh, those were guys in the past, like who could check a little bit better, a lot, a lot better than like even young Calderon. Calderon, this is all, Calderon's always been the glass cannon. Like he's he's you know the the character in the video game who you know all offense, no defense, and uh, it's just remained true. But like shooting is a thing, like you said, like it's just it's not reliant on your quickness or whatever else. Like Calderon can pass, he can he can shoot, and he can still get to a few spots on the floor. So I mean, it's a if he doesn't have to guard anyone, sure. But if, let's say, Steph Curry or James Harden is in this series, that's it's a lot different. It just speaks to the fact that they benefit so much from what he's able to do as a shooter and basically very little else. I mean, again, his passing is good. He's got one of the all-time great um, assist-to-turnover ratios, too, because he doesn't turn it over much. But it just speaks to how ill-advised the, the moves were this summer. We, we said this on the very first or second episode of the podcast um, that – you know, Wade and Rose and some of these guys, they just didn't make a lot of sense because you need so much shooting around LeBron and, you know, you're getting guys that are known to really not be shooters from their perimeter. Um, that just kind of how misguided a lot of that stuff was. And I actually come to think of it, remember tweeting with a fan that asked me, uh, at one point about the fit with Rose. I was like, it sounds crazy and kind of blasphemous to say this as again, as someone that covered both of them. But I mean, we're having a serious conversation right now about whether Calderon fits that team better than Derrick Rose. And before the season, that sounded a bit strong. I mean, now I, I think it's very, you know, abundantly clear that that was actually the case. Okay, that'll do it for this week's show. Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are also there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, where you can find us at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.